0: Welcome back to The Dutch Podcast, where integrative medicine providers can expand their understanding of functional endocrinology and testing, and everyone, no matter who you are, can learn more about their body's most complex communication system. I'm Noah Reed. Vice President of Sales and Marketing for the Dutch Test. And coming up on this week's episode, Dr. Tara Scott is back for a second Ask the Expert segment where she walks us through the second stage of life that women go through. We'll learn about testing during menopause and her take on aging gracefully. So now, on to the show. Thanks, Noah. And thanks, Tara Scott, for coming back
1: to finish out this life cycle of females. So we talked before about puberty and what happens after that and that phase of life where we're having babies and all of that. And then that stops. Um, so again, your expertise is perfect to kind of guide us through this intellectually. So can you just start from not the beginning, but the middle towards the end and explain to us if I've got a female who's cycling regularly, like just stereotypically healthy, normal, ovulating, whatever. And then she starts to turn towards menopause perimenopause like just start right in that story and tell us what's happening hormonally what's happening to their uh their bodies um and we'll pick it up from there.
2: Well, first of all, I just have to say that so much of the focus is on contraception and fertility. And so a lot of these women, you know, in the absence of needing contraception, like maybe they've had a tubal ligation or their husband's had a vasectomy, if they're having any hormone issues they're, they're left with kind of nothing. And so that's where a lot of the education needs to take place, I think, to traditional providers and even functional providers, because it doesn't go straight from reproduction to menopause. There's that huge piece that you said is perimenopause. And by the definition, the straw classification that the North American Menopause Society endorses is that once your cycle lengthens by seven days, technically, That's when you're in perimenopause. So if you really think about that definition, that means if I have a 28-day cycle and one time have a 35-day cycle, that really widens that age range of perimenopause. You could be in that for 10 years. So... Traditionally and anecdotally, I would say most women have like once a year, like some kind of weird cycle. That doesn't necessarily mean they're in perimenopause. They might just, you know, have a late cycle or a heavy cycle or something. And it's not necessarily a sign that something's wrong. And what generally happens in this age range is because they're not focused on conceiving and because maybe they don't have to worry about contraception because they've done some kind of permanent contraception, they're not always thinking about their cycle and if it's normal and what's abnormal. Like we're not telling them that information isn't out there. And of course now, as we mentioned with social media, more and more people can get this information, but there are so many signs in that perimenopause that we should have our antenna up for so we can be more preventative of these hormonally related problems like Breast density, breast cancer, fibroids, you know, even just, you know, menorrhagia, endometrial hyperplasia, uterine cancer, diabetes, you know, as a result of abnormal estrogen and estrogen imbalance with progesterone. There's a lot of other things that can happen that we're not really taught, and we don't tell women that these are the things that need to be monitored.
1: And when you talk about monitoring, um, what is different in that phase relative to when they were 35 and cycling? I test you when you're 35 and if you are picture perfect, I get a certain picture and you're within a lot of normal ranges. So when you're, when you're having a normal experience in the midst of perimenopause, but again, not yet menopausal, what does that look like in terms of your lab values and what you're seeing on a Dutch test and other like hormone related lab testing?
2: The biggest problem with perimenopause is we've got these poor quality follicles, you know, and we know that if you try to get pregnant in your forties or late forties, you're gonna have poor egg quality, but nobody cares about that egg quality when it talks about hormone production. So if you have varying levels of estradiol production, and we talked about that lifeguard and the FSH going up and the estradiol just, just swinging from high to low based on FSH stimulation, we always have this underlying descent of progesterone because these are poor quality follicles. So it's pretty common for women to be estrogen dominance, which, you know, that's a problem because we talked about estrogen causing growth and progesterone causing cell death in the uterus and the breast. So those are two hormonally sensitive areas that, if unregulated, could lead to cancer so to me you know it's such a preventable thing i think if we did test everyone but it's not standard of care
1: if you did test everyone
2: yes we should everyone you know ideally everyone should have a dutch test when they're 25 35 45 in the absence of any problems right that should be a normal right and i think the consumers are pushing it you know so they're driving it these i guess i could say millennials. Um, you know, they, they they want to know about their body. They want to be proactive about their health, which is fantastic. Right. My generation, which whatever generation I am, I think I'm Z. Um, they don't want to know <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. right. So right. I would much rather have someone be much more preventative.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a good point to say, I don't want to have a child right now. So then you yeah. just stop thinking about like the hormonal impact of the fact that it's harder to have a child at 42 than it was at 32 means you can't have a kid, but you might not want to have a kid, but then you're maybe ignoring the fact that those changes in that phase of life have some consequences that the, that testing and just paying attention to what's going on then can be really helpful. So for you, when you see those women who are going through that natural experience of have estrogen bouncing all over the place, and the progesterone is not as robust as it used to be. What are the typical types of sort of solutions to the the negative consequences of that phase of life? Like what are the the things you're reaching for in terms of tools for those women?
2: So I I explain it to my patients like, you know, when you're in your 40s, it's like you have a job on commission. You don't know each month how much you're gonna get paid, right, you get paid a lot. If you're saying your paycheck is your ovarian hormones. You get paid a lot, you get paid a little bit, right? And so that's where it really ties a lot in with adrenal function, because if your ovaries are your monthly paycheck, your adrenal gland is your 401k. And so how you treat your 401k is gonna be directly correlated with what kind of menopause you're gonna experience, right? I mean, if you've saved up and you're not dipping into your savings account, you can retire and that's fine. You live off of your savings. But if you're constantly dipping into your savings or you're not saving and you retire, you're gonna have to get a part-time job, right? To bridge that gap. So using these tools now that we have this awareness about hormone levels, I mean, that's what we do in our practice, we test people, we do all types of testing and we don't guess, we wanna know the objective information about what the lab ranges are. Now, symptoms generally correlate, but sometimes somebody might have really abnormal labs but no symptoms, that might happen. Or the opposite, really abnormal symptoms but normal labs, again, that's, why that's one of the reasons why traditional doctors kind of uh, dismiss hormone testing because they say well hormone levels fluctuate so much they're not going to mean it but yes we just walked through the cycles of course they fluctuate if you get an estradiol on day three day 14 and day 21 you're going to get completely different levels right that's the nature of the menstrual cycle so even though these levels fluctuate if you're properly trained you know when to order things and so this is a tool whether it's any kind of traditional blood testing or functional testing, we have those tools to test people.
1: When it sounds like what you're saying is um, a pretty good sales pitch for the Dutch test in the sense that if you don't take care of your adrenal health, which you know thankfully 30s and 40s are not stressful at all for women who are working and dealing with teenagers and husbands and, um, and all sorts of things in life, uh, but that having that more comprehensive look when you are peering into your hormones, can be can be helpful in terms of making sure that you're you're looking at those things of primary importance maybe in the female hormones but also caring for those uh, related but different things being the androgens and the cortisol and, and and all of those things which may not be as relevant today as you as you're mentioning as they may be when your ovaries are supposed to be done um, and then you need a little bit more support from uh, sort of the backup team the backup quarterback there making making hormones with, with the adrenal production. Um, so you're talking about the natural phase of life and you know, people use the, the term like aging gracefully. And I think of like, well, aging naturally, aging gracefully, like for you as somebody who's no doubt walked through this with so many women. Like wait,
2: wait, I thought you were gonna ask me how old I am. I'm not I refuse to disclose that.
1: That is not a question that is coming around the corner. No, I do okay. not care. I just want to stop you there. Listen, which part of your thirties you're in is no business of mine. Okay. So we're not going there. Um but what is that like I guess would you differentiate between aging naturally and aging well?
2: Well So let me first give you like how I explain hormones too, right? Because again, it's kind of like financial aid. You're not there yet, but what happens is you fill out this FAFSA form, right? And so some kids cannot go to college without financial aid, right? Some people like will never get financial aid, right? They just won't qualify because their parents make too much money. So that's kind of like hormone therapy. Some women go through menopause and they don't need hormone therapy. Their bodies are living off of their savings, their adrenals are good. So when you talk about aging gracefully, really the fundamentals that we knew so many years ago before Big Pharma is, you know, prioritizing sleep, movement and exercise, a clean diet without all the processed food and the endocrine disruptors, you know, and stress management, those four pillars are imperative no matter what right and so i have seen women that are able to age gracefully really concentrating on those basics and not need hormone therapy now you throw in there some genomics some problems with estrogen detox some methylation yeah you may or may not need hormone therapy so that would be like that financial aid some people cannot go to college without financial aid
1: that's a great answer um when you think about that there's a difference between, I think, aging gracefully in one sense and just flat out being able to tolerate it. So if you have a tolerable menopausal transition such that the patient is saying, hey, my, my quality of life in my own brain right now is fine. So for that patient, are you concerned about uh, the first thing my brain thinks of is bone health, right? Is like is, how do you address the patient who is like, listen, I, like the uncomfortableness of menopause? I'm totally fine with. Um, Are you digging further to say, hey, listen, but if in that situation you have like overt deficiencies of estrogen, testosterone, whatever we got, we got to take care of your bones. Like, how do you approach people like that that can tolerate it? But like, how far are you digging into that?
2: So it's going to be 20 years since the WHI this summer. So july and so if you think about that you know the whi was the study that got all the uh headlines about estrogen causing breast cancer and blood clots and to this day people still believe that we have so many more studies since then that have swung the pendulum the other way we have so much more data but if you pull i bet you if you pulled 10 gynecologists i bet you eight of them would say hormones are bad right, right? and that's that's really a tragedy if you pulled 10 family practice doctors, 10 would say don't take hormones. So that's really, really a part of our problem, right? So the North American Menopause Society says, you know, based on what they're looking at is all the data, and even if a lot of it is on oral estrogen, synthetic progestins, the benefits outweigh the risk of hormone therapy between the ages of 50 and 60. The benefits outweigh the risk, unless you personally have a history of breast cancer. The number one killer in women is heart disease, Number two is stroke. Number three is lung cancer. Number four is breast cancer. If you add up two, three, and four, you still don't equal the number of deaths from heart disease. And we know that hormone therapy is positive if it started at or around menopause. Within that first, those early years, early start is heart protective. So I personally do go through all of that with every patient I see. You know, what is your heart risk? What is your bone risk? The death rate two years after a hip fracture is higher than 10 years after breast cancer, yet patients fear breast cancer diagnosis, right? right? So I believe that every patient deserves to have a hormone assessment and a personal evaluation of the risks and benefits as it applies to them and their family history. And then they can make an informed choice to whether they take hormones or not. But they're not, I mean, if it based on what I'm hearing on TikTok, what patients are telling me, they're not getting that chance. They're not yeah. getting that evaluation. They're told, I don't prescribe hormones, which I think is fine. A doctor has a prerogative to prescribe or not prescribe, but that doesn't mean you don't you can't go to somebody else who does, or you don't deserve to get that evaluation. Like I said, just like everyone who wants to go to college fills out that FAFSA. So it would be great to have everyone do hormone testing and then get an evaluation because yes, you're right, heart disease is a killer. And there was another study that was done by the Women's Alzheimer's Translational Research Board. They took over 400 women on HRT most of them were over 65. There was a 60% reduction in Alzheimer's and neurocognitive disorders, 60% reduction in Alzheimer's. Wow. So that's a crazy reduction. And it was the, the reduction was greatest women over 65 that took hormone therapy for six years, and it was greatest in the people who took it in a bioidentical form. Do you think if women knew that they would want to take hormone therapy? They want their brains, you know, but that's not what they're hearing. Now, that was not a randomized placebo-controlled trial. That was an observational study. But it's still 400,000 people, and there were only about 10,000 and 15,000 in each arm of the WHI. It was not a huge number. Right. So we have a lot of data in observational studies, and I think, like I said, I mean, so that's kind of why I'm out, like, vocal on social media, trying to educate people that you know, you need to, you know, does everyone need to take hormone therapy? Not necessarily, but you need to at least know what are your risks and benefits. It's kind of like financial planning, right? Does everyone go to a financial planner and forecast, okay, I want to retire when I'm 65, I want to have this much money in the bank, so let's do this, 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 and let's get my, you know, my low risk or my long range planning assessment. Not everybody does that, right? Right. So your retirement is different. If you do that, you're going to have a better retirement. just like just like hormone therapy so some people are planners and some people want to be preventative
1: right so i think that was a yes so everyone gets that message and i think you have a little bit of passion for it which is awesome um (laughs) and i think i think what's so important is you know maybe two out of ten you said eight out of ten which means two out of the ten are getting it right but i think if you i think zero out of ten actually know the literature on that right, and that's where I think people like you are really, really helpful for our industry. To say, listen, I'm I'm one of the odd ducks that I'm in practice, but I also got my nose in the literature, um, and so you can really help. I think guide. Uh, practitioners as they try to make good decisions because people get scared, you know, it's easier to just go back to that, what you might say is a conservative position, but it doesn't, doesn't end up being because it's not conserving people's lives if they, you know, don't get one sort of death, but they die from the most prevalent type of death, which is again, a risk factor you can modify by being smart about the way that you approach that, which doesn't mean everyone needs the same treatment, that's a the point of individualized medicine, Right. But to know, to know those risks and benefits, well, I think, well done. I think that's, um, that's great. So speaking of knowing and not knowing, tell me about the patient who says, Hey, I cycle a couple times a year and maybe they're in that perimenopausal phase. I always wonder what those patients like, what the heck is going on? Is that, do you think that's real ovulation? Like what's going on with someone who just bleeds a couple times a year? Do you mean if
2: they're close to menopause?
1: Yeah, not quite there, you know, late 40s, early 50s, something like that. Yeah, I
2: think they're not ovulating every month. They're just ovulating sporadically, Okay. you know, so they're just having a cycle here and there. And I think, you know, and it gets to be the point where, think about, again, that lifeguard, right? So, and those old men. And then you've got all those men that are standing around at the block, that they've stood up, right? Then there is a lot of times a little bit of estrogen that goes up but then nobody decides to jump in right so we still see when women are not ovulating a little surge in estrogen but no progesterone follow-up right right? and so women will say god i feel like i'm still cycling but i didn't have the period because that's essentially what's happening fsh is like hey come on who's gonna swim and then you'll have that little increase no ovulation nobody stepped up and then i think i don't want to swim now so they leave right so then estrogen goes down and so hence another plug for the continuous estrogen monitor. Right? So, I mean, that would be really helpful as well.
1: Right on it. So we've talked a lot about what estrogen's doing during perimenopause, uh, which is interesting. And then progesterone, which is, is fairly predictably gonna gonna die off between that healthy premenopausal and at postmenopausal when the ovaries just aren't making any anymore so i'm assuming um that you're more likely to give a woman progesterone than you are estrogen in that phase of the perimenopause is that right that's true so then when i think of progesterone i think of typically oral vaginal transdermal on the skin. So. How do you sort through, or just what do you do in your practice? Like what's what's typical for a woman who's, uh, you know, maybe ovulating but has insufficient progesterone and her estrogen levels are plenty high where you need to support that? Like how are you approaching that?
2: So the most common form is going to be oral. We have FDA approved oral micronized progesterone in generic form and in name brand as well. So we have a lot of data on it, a lot of studies that have been done that we know it's safe and we know the doses. But the downside is we only have two doses on it. So that would be the most common use. And we know that there is an estrogen and progesterone receptor in every cell of the body. We know there's one in the breast because that's a normal evaluation for breast cancer. So to give it orally, you're getting systemically. You're going to get it to, you know, the breast. You're going to get it to the uterus. You're going to get it to the brain, bone, everywhere, because it's going to go into the systemic circulation. Traditionally, we think of vaginal, and I know there are some some prescribers that use that as systemic, but vaginal is local therapy. I don't believe that we have studies, and I don't know, do we have studies that it's going to protect the brain? Do we have studies that it's going to protect the bone, the heart? Because it was derived for fertility support in uh, reproductive, assisted reproduction, you know, because when you do IVF, you're essentially pop in a needle in the corpus luteum when you are extracting the eggs for IVF. So you have to give them IM progesterone and then after you get vaginal progesterone because until that 13 weeks, you need progesterone to support that embryo. So that's how vaginal sources came about is under the guise of fertility where the focus is the uterus. So again, I, I have not done the literature to see do we know that there is breast protection with vaginal progesterone? I don't know. Is there heart benefits? I don't know. I mean, Dr. Saltiel probably does know that data better than I do. So that's my concern. Now, when you're talking about topical, again, there aren't a lot of, there isn't a lot of data because it's not funded by big pharma. Helene Leonetti did a couple studies on topical progesterone where she did a lot. First, first study that was looking at markers like a CRP and uh, cardiometabolic markers, seeing that progesterone did have a favorable effect. And I believe she looked at both transdermal and oral. She also did a second study looking to see does topical progesterone really provide endometrial protection? And she did find that there was no increased risk of endometrial hyperplasia, and they did biopsies in those patients, but there was a small number, right? So do we have any large studies that say topical progesterone protects the endometrium from the effect of estrogen? And then again, do we know about the breast? Because I I can pull the studies that show unopposed estrogen, even though this is not also standard of care, I can pull the studies that show that unopposed estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer. Even though the WHI in one study in 10,000 people did not show that after five years CE increased the risk of breast cancer, the Nurses' Health Study that had 122,000 people did show somewhere between a 20 to 40% increased risk in breast cancer in estrogen only. Besides the WHI, and that, that was, was randomized,
1: conjugated yeah. equine estrogen also, or that was something different in that one?
2: In the Nurses' Health Study, I mm-hmm. think it was not just CE, it might have been others, but I'm oh, not okay. sure, but estrogen alone.
1: Right. Without progesterone or progesterone. Yeah. So
2: the issue is that standard of care is estrogen alone after hysterectomy, which I'm vehemently opposed to. Right. Because, you know, I don't operate anymore. But when I took the uterus out, we didn't also take the breast out. And I'm pretty sure they don't do that now either. So you're giving all those women that have breasts unopposed estrogen. So so, so the dosage form that we have the most data on is oral. So what is accepted in my world is that once you introduce any kind of estrogen, you really ought to be giving oral progesterone because we know that is going to protect the uterus. And again, um, I believe it's going to get to the breast. Now,
1: right.
2: I don't know, you, you might know, are there well, progesterone I, that-
1: I don't think outcome studies have been done with vaginal progesterone, but if you look at serum progesterone levels, will actually get higher with vaginal than with oral. So I would say there's great promise in that. Um, but I don't think that it's been studied and it's been studied as it relates to the endometrium, right? 40 milligrams, a hundred milligrams. You put that on vaginally, meaning, you know, the top third of the vagina so that you get that uterine first pass and the uterus is just flooded with progesterone. Then you ask the subsequent question, well, what's in the breast? And I think the best surrogate you would have for that in that situation, I mean, based on the data we have now would be serum, which bumps up, you know, up and over 10 and 12, um, you know, with a normal range of four to 20 or whatever, like you get up into that range for a big chunk of the day with those types of doses. So I think you could make some assumptions, but to your point, no one's actually done outcome studies that I'm aware of. Um, and yeah, Dr. Saltiel would always know better than I do, but I don't well, think that's been done.
2: There was that study in 1995 that Chang did in fertility and sterility that they put topical progesterone actually on the breast right. and did breast biopsies. So you know, we know that with a topical, but that's directly at the tissue, that, that it does cause, it prevents breast cell hyperplasia. So we do know that, that it that has that same effect, but the question is, is it getting there? Right. So if you're putting something in the vagina, you've got all that pelvic vasculature, right? And right. so that's going to put it into that circulation and can reflect serum levels. But does that mean that it's actually gone to the breast and the brain, or does that mean it's just been picked up into that circulation? I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you could make some assumptions. And I think with Chang, if all you were worried about was the uterus and the breast, then you'd have, you know, some rationale between of maybe putting it on the breast. But if you also have benefits in the brain and elsewhere, then you do want that systemic exposure and the most studied, as you said, is oral for getting a a, a progesterone effect um, you know, all over the place. That's a good way to go. So, uh, well, that's helpful. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate that. So, um,
2: and also as an aside, as a woman, I'm not going to want to put something in my vagina and be drippy all day. I'd rather just take a capsule, right? And so, it's just not super practical.
1: I will take your word for it, but I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, we 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 built our testing, particularly with estrogen and, and testosterone, to be useful for monitoring vaginal. We we actually are looking to take our Uh, vaginal estrogen data to NAMS next year. That's my main target because it shows that with 0.04, and we're getting off topic, 0.04 of estradiol, you're actually up and out of that postmenopausal range, which shows little tiny doses on those mucosal membranes are getting... Presumably, systemic exposure of estradiol, which is pretty interesting.
2: Well, that's what that study, when they looked at when Vagifem used to be 25 micrograms, that's why they lowered the dose because after one week with CEE, at seven days, they were getting systemic levels. Right. After seven days. So there's that that study that shows that too. So you're right. I mean, that's a very interesting, you know, because we traditionally don't oppose vaginal estrogen, you know. Right. Well, the.
1: The term low dose, I think, is a bit of a misnomer because um, they did a study actually on, I was just looking at on melatonin. So random, but they looked at it thoroughly enough to show that when they put it on the skin, they got about 10% in and darn close to 100 when they put it on vaginally. And so people talk about 0.2 milligrams of estradiol as if it's low and it is if you give it in other routes of administration but if you can get it on a mucosal membrane again 0.04 from our study was enough to actually get it up and into a range where you might expect bone mineral density not proven but you might expect bone mineral density to increase and and the like meaning systemic exposure so um and that's an interesting hrt topic for another day that will will save some of those rabbit trails for that but um the the tour through perimenopause has been very helpful. So I really appreciate your expertise
0: and thank you for taking the time uh, to share with us today. So we appreciate it. You're welcome. Dr. Scott, thank you again for joining us on part two of this two-part series. And thank you to all of our listeners who joined. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Bethany Hayes to learn more about progesterone, you won't want to miss this high level understanding of an important and complex hormone. If you have any questions, please send them to podcast at I know you've heard me say it before. And as a new podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you liked, subscribed, and shared that you listened to us on social media. Tag our Instagram account at dutchtest and let us know what you loved. I'm Noah Reed. Until next time.